Hi, everyone, and welcome to Workplace 2.0, Tango's podcast about all things corporate real estate. Recently, we held our annual Workplace 2.0 Summit, which was chock full of great roundtable discussions and presentations by industry leaders about the return to the office and hybrid work moving forward. We've packaged some of the best sessions as podcasts for those who are more on the go. And if you're interested in listening or watching additional sessions, check out this episode's show notes for details. Enjoy. For those of you who are unable to attend the last session regarding the future work, uh, we're kind of continue the discussion, really diving into the people, the human side of hybrid work and what we're calling Workplace 2.0 here at Tango. And this roundtable will focus on specifically the employee perspective. I'm sure we'll touch on some of the employer side of things and how it affects employees, but we really want to hone in on the employees themselves. So uh, hopefully you were in the last session and know uh, Julia from that very uh, data-rich session uh, about what PwC is seeing out there. Um, But joining the discussion will also be some leaders from Accenture and HOK. So why don't we go ahead and just do a quick round of uh, introductions. Uh, Julia, why don't you go ahead and give a little bit of background on your role and and your work at PwC? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thanks for for sticking with us if you were on the last one. Um, I'm Julia Lamb. I'm a partner at PwC at our workforce strategy practice. I'm based out of New York. Um, And over the last 15 months, uh, my focus has really been uh, primarily on COVID-related workforce transitions, productivity, employee engagement. Um, but generally speaking, I focus on uh, broader topics around workforce strategy, uh, like workforce planning, upskilling, talent management, um, and uh, and the like. Very nice to be here. Thanks, Bart. Awesome. Megan? Hi, I'm Megan Perrin. I work for Accenture. I'm in our real estate and workplace solutions practice. Um, I have historically been working on IoT and connected spaces. So thinking about all types of technology for the built environment and specifically um, over the past year or so, I've been focusing on uh, workplaces and and the back to work um, experience. Good to be here. Great, thanks Megan. And last but not least, Adam. And I'm Adam Stoltz. Hi everyone. I serve as the firmware director of consulting at HOK, architecture and planning uh, and interiors firm, uh, also based out of uh, HOK's New York office that work globally with specialists that focus in workplace strategy, real estate and portfolio strategy and change management. We like to ask questions like, why even have space in the first place? Which, of course, as a design firm, um, suggests that there are very good reasons. We just want to make sure that we know those foundational elements are first before designing it. So thanks. Welcome. Welcome. All right, great. So let's jump into it. Uh, We met as a group prior to this event and kind of laid out some topic areas and some questions that we thought would be good to cover. So let's start in kind of the general care category. Um, And I'm interested in each of your opinions on this. So the question is, how have you seen the vision of the post-pandemic workplace change over the last year for the employee side as well as the employer side? Adam, why don't you uh, kick us off here? Because Julia probably needs a break. Sure. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, I I would say to some degree, I think the vision has actually become a bit murkier. Uh, than, than clearer, uh, particularly of, of late. Um, and what I 
mean by that is that it seemed like at the beginning, right? When I say the beginning, right, a year and a half ago, nearly, sort of we're reaction mode, right? Go home, figure out how to be effective uh, as best you can, given a less than ideal uh, circumstance, uh, to say to say the least. Um, and what's happened, particularly in the last few months, is that I think decisions about how to navigate return to office, the frequency with which you might use the office, what it might look like, how it's going to support people, and how you're going to navigate working with those who are there and those who are not, has become a lot more complex and actually less certain, I would argue, than, than more certain as we're getting closer to it. That makes uh, sense. We've, a couple of the previous sessions touched on, on that fact of the, the equity between the in-office and not in the office uh, folks. Uh, Megan, how about you? What are some of the changes to the vision of the workplace in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, I think um, I think we've seen a lot of the same. So, I mean, it was very much uh, a year or so ago. When when are we getting back? When are we getting back to normal? When are we coming back to the office? Um, this is just temporary. And you know, as time went on, I think there was a big realization that we can be productive from home. Um, I think a lot of managers weren't weren't certain about that. Um, I think maybe you know, it's it is complicated, as, as Adam was saying. I think. Also, as time goes on, people are getting like, okay, I got to get out of my house. I want to go back. I want to see people. So um, I think that's where this kind of hybrid now employers and employees are kind of thinking, well, we're going to come back, but in what, how, how much, how often, what are we coming back for? What are we going to do in the office? Um, those are sort of some of the questions we're you know, starting to see our, our clients asking now. Yep. And Julia, a lot of the data that you went through before highlighted a little bit of a disconnect between employers and employees about timing of the return and number of days in the office and those types of things. So what are you seeing as far as the vision from to the both sides of the coin about the future? Yeah, well, despite the disconnect, I mean, I think this has been a really, um, you know, while tragic um, also a really in time for people who are working in offices. Um, ultimately, you know, we had been working with clients prior to the pandemic about the concept of flexibility. You know, you go in the office, it's a cubicle farm. Um, and you know, people were still, you know, very traditional in terms of the ways of, of working. Um, the, this has been a huge change management exercise and people have learned to do work remotely. I've had very senior leaders say, you know, I really thought that if someone was working from home, they couldn't be productive. And man, I've been impressed. I've been surprised. So I, I do think we brought a lot of people along, um, including leaders themselves who might, you know, be uh, more prone to working remotely some days um, and not come in every every day, especially when we start to think about flu season coming up. So I think it's been really, you know, great progress from that perspective. Um, but from an overall talent management perspective too, just thinking about the definition of the workplace, this is this is something we've been thinking about. You know, now as you think about your workplace, is not just the office; it could also be the coffee shop, the co-working space, your home office. You know, the employers have to think about what's their responsibility um, for for workers who are in an alternative space. So it starts to complicate um, that picture, which previously was very very clear. Bart, if I could, I, I mean, Megan said right a, a few minutes ago that it, this idea of like 
what are we coming back for? Right. And I think I won't say every, right. Cause we, we're not going to, we're not going to overgeneralize here. Or at least we'll, we'll try not to, but the idea that, that a lot of organizations, right. Seem to be focused on, and certainly the headlines seem to be focused on the days, right. The quantification of, well, if there's going to be a return, how many days is it going to be and by how many people and with, why are we, you know, let's get a few more starting with a few more companies, organizations starting with, again, that idea of why do we have space at all? How about what is the purpose? What are we coming back for? If we're going to ask people to return, why will we do, why will we do that? Right. And there are very good reasons. Of course there are, but, you know, let's start there. No, I, I think that does make sense. I think one of the challenges, obviously, in wanting to understand the quantitative side of how many days you're in or when you're going to be in is the supply side of it, the space side of it. So how do we better understand what people want to do and then fit our, our spaces around that? But that does begin with purpose. It's not just how often you're going to be in the office. It's what are you going to come in the office and do? You know, it's needed to be a purpose-driven visit, uh, for lack of a better word. And then you understand the flow of work. Then you understand the real estate needs. Um, so how about what advice you're giving to HR and workplace executives about what work should look like given the dynamic of what has changed? What, should it be hybrid? Should it be flexible? Does it depend on industry? Does it depend on culture? I'm sure you're going to say yes to all of that, but what are you, what are you advising? Um, I, I can jump in here just, um, off the back of the, the last topic, I mean, we're, we're kind of advising, you know, you're moving from a when to, to why. We're advising, why are you coming in? Start by looking at the roles. What is it that you need to do? What is it that you're doing? And then, you know, looking at those tasks, where is the best place to do that? Is it, you know, collaboration? You want to be in the office? Is it heads down? Do you do that better at home? Or do you have a bunch of kids at home? You do that better in the office, you know? So starting there, um, just, you know, figuring out at, at the kind of role role level working with HR and, um, and then we, you know, design workplace to suit, um, to suit whatever the purpose is for, for people coming in. It sounds a bit like the persona approach that you were talking about, uh, Julia. Um, how does that influence uh, the workplace of the future? Yeah, the, the persona approach, um, you know, just tying into Megan, what you were just saying, we, we do a, a pretty rigorous analysis around um, uh, defining personas and very generally they're, you know, you're all remote, you're hybrid, or you're all in person to oh, super overgeneralize. Yeah. Um, but then it's same general um, thought, uh, apply on top of that, what's the requirement for the work? And then beyond, uh, beyond that, layer in the personal preference. Now, we've been seeing a pretty interesting spectrum of how organizations are actually planning for that. Some are still doing total free-for-all. Like, we're going hybrid. Come on back. You're two to three days a week, and we'll see how it goes, um, which is really interesting. Um, those companies are already suspecting that Monday and Friday will be very quiet. Because um, those are the popular days to work uh, remotely, and and then all the way across the spectrum to very stringent control of what the hybrid model is going to be, um, and when people are allowed to come in the office. And in many cases, that there's a tie in there to are 
real estate, it costs things like something like that. They've got a portion of the space that they're going to let go or have already um, gotten rid of. So trying to get mm. a large number of people into a smaller space. And those are being a lot more prescriptive. So they're, they're kind of saying, hey, you're in a finance function. You get one day a week. That's it. And this is your <laughs> this is your day. Um, you're in, you know, whatever, whatever other business function and, and based on the work, this is how many days you can come in and, and manage accordingly. So it's been really interesting because I, I don't pick up on a specific trend across that. Um, it's not, you know, all insurance companies are, you know, total free for all and banks are on the other end of the spectrum. It really seems distributed based on maybe it's tied to culture or just general readiness. Um, but it, there doesn't seem to be a pattern emerging about why you're at one end or another, except for the real estate driver. I don't think we're going to be able to command and control our way out of this, this, uh, this suggestion, this idea that companies, that some companies have about dictating what days in which employees will exhibit flexibility, right? That, that idea, those, those two things are at complete odds with one another, in in my uh, in my view, um, and so the idea again, or the suggestion that you know that, that we're going to find success in suggesting uh, this group all comes in on exactly the same day every other week, except if it's cloudy on a Tuesday, right? And and these five people are part of the A group, and they come in Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. The minute someone's kid is ill or they take a vacation, right? Then they're not in, it throws the thing out of whack. So uh, that kind of dictating that I think will, for, for companies that try it, will fall apart pretty quickly. And I think they'll just get really frustrated with it. What I am seeing, because Bart, you mentioned or asked about from an HR standpoint, really focused right now on working under the sort of assumption that there were things to fix about the way we approached supporting people in our workplaces before the pandemic, particularly around the experience of some people being present in the room and other people being remote, but participating in that activity at the same time, right? We could have a lot of fun, right? Acting out the typical hour phone call from a year and a half ago where somebody's on the line for 58 minutes only to pipe up at the very end, right? When the people in the room realize they're still on the line, but they haven't been heard from the entire time. Right. And then I say, oh, yeah, well, it was hard to hear. But anyway, so, you know, that idea of focusing on training, on facilitation, on the ability to engage so that there's more equitable experience of participating and contributing to work. Those are the kinds of things that I think from that, that HR and um, uh, uh, talent uh, can really uh, focus on here, particularly in our return to, to the office so that it's better, better than it was. You know, it's interesting. I've heard one through a client experience and one just uh, reading uh, an article I saw about Ford Motor. They're kind of going to that forced structure type of concept where, and I've heard this a couple of places, you set certain weeks. So for example, one week out of the month, your department's coming in, you're in all five days, other departments that work with you are in that time as well. And the remaining three weeks, we've got other floors. If you do want to come in, you can reserve a space. But, you know, that type of structure versus a free-for-all. Have, have you seen that um, kind of talked about out there? Yeah, especially early on in the pandemic, it was the A-B week concept. Yeah. Um, the challenge that we've been hearing is um, that that's great for people who don't have um, other non-work responsibilities like childcare or, 
you know, kids, you have to get out the door for school and having, so for, for those individuals being able to have more flexibility, what Adam's talking about, the flexibility that's really not just about like, this is your assigned day in office, but really being able to, you know, come back like this concept of core um, hours has been around for a while at the core hours are 10 to three and you should be in the office from 10 to three, but maybe you drop your kids at school beforehand. So you get in 930 and then you leave a little bit later. Um, but there's so many dimensions to it. Um, and I, I just think what we've been hearing Bart about like that concept of the one week on one week off or one week on couple weeks off, people have trouble balancing. And then you worry about disproportionate impact against women for ethnic minorities, like people who, who are disproportionately impacted by that. So just some considerations. I don't think that means it's a wrong answer. I think companies just need to plan for it. Well, and I've unfortunately heard some leaders say, well, what did they do before the pandemic? I mean, none of these healthcare issues, none of these childcare issues, none of these personal. So it's kind of which is first work or life. And, um, you know, it came up in the other session. Is it, are you trying to fit your life into work? You're trying to fit your work into life. So it seems like we've kind of switched to that fitting work into life in a good way, in my opinion, but a lot of, a lot of executives who are a little old school are saying, look, this is nothing new. We had this before. Why do we need to change? It wasn't a problem before, you know, how do you respond to that? And maybe the employees respond to that with their feet, right? We talked a little bit about that with um, a, a lot of folks saying, you know, upwards of 58, 60% of workers uh, will plan on looking for work if they are not allowed to continue to have flexible schedules. I can see that one week off, multiple weeks, wait, one week on in the office, multiple weeks off site, working well, given what's happened uh, from a physical move perspective with so many people who've moved to further commuting distances out of major cities or moved entirely, like maybe in the future, that gives them the option to, you know, fly up for that one week, they're supposed to be in person and then, you know, go home. So in some cases, it might be a great solution. I think companies need to listen to their employees and see where they're at and and then figure out what's right for them and probably take it down to a team level too. You know, if you're if you're if that works for your whole team, great, operationalize it. Absolutely. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about the C-suite and where this fits on the agenda of leadership. I know I've heard many a discussion where, um, you know, the CC suite wasn't as involved. They may be involved in real estate as it relates to enabling operations, manufacturing, kind of big things uh, relating to business operations and then the cost side of it. But now with the return to work and hybrid work and all that, you know, they're sticking their nose in the tent. Um, They're asking a lot of questions. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of real estate and workplace leaders are unable to provide those answers because they don't necessarily have the systems. So are you seeing a elevated uh, agenda item here for the C-suite uh, as it relates to this whole whole dynamic? Megan, why don't we jump in with you first? Um, yeah, I think definitely from a, from a leadership perspective, uh, we're seeing more the C-suite kind of have a perspective one, one way or another. Um, which, you know, depending on the, on the business and the leader, um, which way it is. And, and they're getting pushback. You know, I, one of my clients, for example, is saying, okay, we're, com- we're coming back. You know, we're doing the AB thing. Most people are vaccinated, come back to the office. And employees are like, I don't you know, we've proven that this works. 
why, you know, why do we need to do that? So definitely, I would say the, we've seen a perspective um, at that level. And I think, you know, we also know that leadership should be involved in the decision going forward and, and in the leadership, you know, if it's going to be a hybrid work model or whatever, um, maybe help, helping the managers understand that we, we can do this. Um, you know, we're going to measure productivity differently. We're going to, um, however, we're going to make this work. Um, that leadership should also come from the top. I think. I think it has to. I mean, we we have from a change management standpoint, right? We've we've learned over time that this idea of sort of grassroots change within particularly corporate organizational structures doesn't work very well when it comes to workplace when the the evolution, right, of of workplace policies and practices. Um, so, yeah, leadership, C-suite, executive level involvement, absolutely. Understandably so, they have a really, you know, they've sort of made a name for themselves as a, within the organization by making very well-informed decisions, usually data-driven decisions. Now, whether or not people end up agreeing with those decisions or they pan out in the long run, that's fine, but they're, they're defendable. And that's where I think Bart was seeing a real disconnect. This is what I think you were alluding to is the sense that they're turning right? Executive leadership are turning to those that they rely on for information, for actionable insight. And it isn't there because we don't have very good, a very good understanding of how spaces were used previously, what current sentiment is, a plan of scenarios or an exploration of various scenarios about what return might look like and, and the, you know, all of the what ifs, right, that can be uh, um, put together at a stage like this. Um, nor, you know, are we ready with systems that allow us to occupy, to go back and occupy spaces and immediately begin to um, uh, understand, right, how that return is working, right, from go. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there is a lot of trepidation, right, about being able to sort of implement really big decisions like this with, without any new information. I would just call out one more thing. We're also seeing boards interested in the decisions that the C-suite's making. And that's an interesting layer because boards are not in it every day. Um, so you kind of remove the personal from the C-suite. Um, boards are especially interested right now because of the anticipated turnover amongst the workforce and the talent risk and the risk that has to business performance. Um, so they're increasingly asking for, you know, return plans, what's the data, what's the data you use to make this decision. Um, so that's been into that um, involvement as well. Absolutely. Okay. One more question in this section before we move on. Uh, what are some of the benefits and shortcomings of a hybrid working model? Do we have time for the whole rest of the session? I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, just from a benefit perspective, right, um, I would call out the, the it, remote working be a great, being a great equalizer. Now, that's not entirely true because so many people have, some people have different Wi-Fi situations. Um, there are some people who have distractions at home. But generally speaking, everyone's the same size box on this call. Um, everyone has the same chance to kind of weigh in and have a voice. And so I think that's been, you know, a tremendous benefit. Um, the work I'd call out the work-life balance um, as well. Um, although you could also argue that there's less because the lines between uh, home and office have been totally eliminated. Um, and so some are not doing well with that, but the ability to maybe, maybe I should say, instead of work-life balance, it's the ability to integrate 
um, your, your work and your home life. Um, I mean, maybe two of those are the biggest benefits from my perspective. I don't know, Megan, Adam, what else you, you'd call out? Yeah, I would say I, I would say the work life balance thing too. I mean, just cutting out the commute alone um, is good. And then if you if you're able to sign off at home, you should have a hopefully better balance. I think in terms of challenges, the hybrid work um, model is probably going to be more challenging than just the everybody at home. Um, I, I, I agree, everybody at home was a, a big equalizer. When we start getting people back in the office and people. Um, sitting at home, unless we've got, you know, the right technology, sometimes you you can't hear on the other end of a of conference line, um, if there's a bunch of people in the office. So I think that's, that technology aspect might be a challenge, um, as well as just adapting the workplace to, um, to hybrid working. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of companies that were working, um, everybody was coming in, they had one to one seating, everybody had their own seat, their own desk. Um, you know, maybe they, they've, cleared those out over the over the past year and they're looking to do um, more of a, a hybrid model. Now I don't know if I have a seat. Am I if I come in, you know, am I gonna have a seat? Um, so implementing things like the reservation system and um, going through all, you know, those changes of the workplace, the way it operates, the way people use it. Um, I think those will be some of the hurdles uh, that we'll have to get through for the benefit of the flexibility. For the sake of our audience, I'm, I'm going to add one. I'm going to mention one that I, I, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and suggest that maybe there are some in our audience who think this would be a shortcoming, but I'm going to turn it into a positive, and that is culture, right? This sort of this assumption that culture is as a result of people coming together in a required way in the built environment, and that is. I think that we can work or we have an opportunity to break that tether to promote and advocate for and celebrate and pursue and in some cases change organizational culture without relying on the space to do it for us is a huge opportunity that we have here. Um, and for, you know, for any organization who feels as though they, um, they need all of their people in all of the time in order to drive that culture or facilitate the, you know, the, the sort of the spread of that culture. I think this is a, a great moment for them to think about what would it look like if, I don't know, for a year and a half, we were a fully remote organization and still had to somehow spread our culture, our values, our mission, right? Our purpose. Um, because in you know, some cases, sort of those things were put on hold over the last year, or at least sort of, you know, diminished, anticipating a return. Um, let's, let's think about rebuilding those without assuming that they're going to happen just because we're returning. If I could weigh in just one more on the list of mm -hmm. the um, cons, um, it's, it's all those moments of transition versus BAU, business as usual, right? So you are a new joiner to the organization. Well, now, how are you going to figure out how things are getting done? You've got to be much more regimented and a self-starter to, you know, navigate and make connections. You've just accepted a promotion and you're going to, you know, be leading a new team or you're elevating your role within a team, right? So you've got to, you know, learn and do, um, do your work in a different way. Um, you're kickstarting a new project. One of the things um, going back to our, our six C's are different types of work, um, if you're collaborating on a project, you might get together to kick off the project. 
then go work remotely because you've sort of stormed at the beginning of the, the team formation, you know, work remotely, come back together for big working sessions. It's those moments, it's those transition moments that are much harder to do in a remote environment that I think we'll all be really appreciating um, being, many of us will be really appreciating being back in the office for. Great point. Okay, let's step into uh, employee productivity and well-being, uh, a very hot topic. Um, let's start on the kind of built environment side of things. What are you guys seeing as it relates to what landlords and employers are doing to invest in the built environment to improve employee well-being? Well, I, if I could start with one thing, I, I think because I often um, jump to, I think, physical right well-being when we start to think about this, this topic, but I think the most important thing that employers can do when it comes to thinking about the well-being of their employees is actually think about uh, their uh, emotional or psychological well-being when it comes to not just reoccupying or returning to the office, um, but in a, in a sort of ongoing or in an effort to support the sort of ongoing connection and decision, right, to continue to return to that office. And I think the best way to do that is actually by being able to more proactively communicate with and make information available to the employees so that they can make, again, we talked about informed decision-making, so that they can make the best informed decision for themselves as to whether or not it's the right moment to be in the office, whether the conditions around the office, and that could be uh, you know, related to the environmental qualities of the, of the office or even just uh, uh, the density or the number of people uh, in the office at, at, at any given time um, are, are right for them, right, to, to be in that day. They, they're going to get the space they need in the neighborhood they want and all of that, that sort of thing. Um, so I think being able to just make information more available uh, and more transparent for employees to make better informed decisions for themselves um, will be a great start. Yeah, I'll say um, I, I agree with the, you know, the mental health aspect, and I think that's something um, our company is certainly looking at trying, like, thinking about people coming back or, or working remotely or whatever. Um, in terms of the physical built environment, I think we're seeing a lot of um, concern over airflow and air quality. So adding sensors for, for that type of thing. Um, the physical distancing, I think that was in, in partitions and things like that. I think that was a thing for a little while, but I think now that we've got vaccines and people are starting to get a little bit more comfortable, I think that'll, I don't think that's as much of, of a concern, I think, going forward. Um, I, there has been, in terms of the data, certainly things like monitoring the space use. So in terms of well-being, you know, just helping people to, maybe it's to stay distance, but using a, um, you know, using sensors and things to, to do that. I know that's something we're looking at in our offices because every new office we build has a certain number of sensors in it. We can tell where the density of people are. And then, you know, we can do things like either proactively kind of say, okay, you know, too many people in this space, let's, let's break it up a bit. Or if there were to be an incident, you could say, okay, we know that, you know, whoever badged in this day was there and uh, we can go kind of do, do some contact tracing. So, I think those, those are some of the, the data elements and, and technology that we're using to help keep people safe and healthy in the office. Yep. Um, and something you had, had mentioned, uh, Adam, about community and culture, like how, how do you better foster or more effectively foster the spread of, of culture and, 
and community in a hybrid type of environment. You know, we've heard about the virtual happy hours. We've heard about the coming together physically certain times. Um, I think uh, you mentioned, uh, Julia, in the last session, like, well, we're not having the water cooler conversation, but maybe I had one and then I can go share that with the rest of the team. But that means I got to go to my desk. I got to open up instant message or whatever. I got to distribute that information versus, hey, everybody, come over here. You know, we've got something to say. So how do you foster the community and the culture? I have to figure out a way to ensure that people who are not in the office can experience those things when they're not happening in a room, right? Because again, there's a lot of attention initially or sort of immediately being paid to how do we connect with people who might be working from different places when the rest of us have are in a conference room, right? Or, or in an enclosed space. And we're talking about speakers and monitors and uh, uh, ways of exchanging, uh, you know, audio and video and other, uh, other things happening in that space. Um, as was said here, right? Well, what about that interaction that occurs in the, in the hallway, right? Is there a, is there a solution for that? Is there something in the kitchen or the pantry area that allows people who aren't there to have a window, right? And years ago, right, we, there were these sort of virtual, right? These sort of um, uh, monitor-based water coolers, right? I mean, there were a couple, there were a number of companies that sort of tried to, you know, go down that path. And you might, looking back on that, might really sort of suggest that they were ahead of their time, um, wanting to provide a portal, right? From one break area to another break area, or for people who weren't there, but, wanted to experience or check in with that, you know, what's happening in the, in the break room right now, right? That, that sort of thing, as if they went in there themselves. Um, so I think, I think opening our minds to, again, where we think culture happens, how it gets strengthened and deepened um, and, and woven together, um, that'll, that's going to go a long way to our ability to um, uh, enable it to, to thrive again. Yeah, and I might just add, you know, obviously there's an element of this that companies can control um, or can influence. Let's not use control, it's probably too strong. Um, but when you think about the behaviors that you're targeting from a cultural perspective, you know, those things can manifest in, in some ways in person and in, in slightly different ways virtually. Like one, one of your cultural attributes might be care. Um, or caring for each other. And, you know, when you do that in person, it's um, pulling out a chair for someone when you enter the break room or make, moving over, making space for them. When you are interacting in a hybrid model, it's saying, hey, you know, taking the time to do a check-in with someone on your team or giving them a chance to talk on the, on the conference call where previously they weighed in at the very end. Um, and if it's all virtual, you know, it's, it's, you know, asking them about something that was you know, tying back to previous call or looking in their background and pointing out something and asking about that. So, you know, you can have very similar cultural attributes that just look the way they manifest um, from a behavior perspective will look a little different remote and in person. Um, I think companies that do tackle this and try to influence it um, will, will, you know, they'll go through an exercise to find those, those cultural attributes and start to talk about how you um, try to start shifting mindsets. And, and you could go through that if you're finding that your organization is having a crisis of culture or, so, or, you know, you're not able to connect in the ways that you were able to previously. And we shouldn't just, um, 
uh, wipe, you know, wipe things aside or, or sort of uh, sweep them aside. It's the phrase, word I was looking for there. Sweep them aside just because they might be a little harder, right? So yeah, if you want to have cupcakes for someone's birthday, by all means, have cupcakes for someone's birthday, but recognize that I might be working from home and I still want to join in the cupcake. Send me a cupcake, right? We could ship anything, anywhere, at any time. There's no reason why I can't. Now, all right, fine. If you don't want to buy a cupcake for everyone who's working remotely that day, encourage them to go out and get a cupcake and join at a particular time, right? So that we can experience that. This, this, this suggestion, again, that people who aren't there, aren't participating or don't get to be in it, um, it it's uh, because it's hard, right? Let's, let's just jump right over that, right? To the other side and say, yeah, it might take a bit more effort, um, but it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a question about productivity. Um, when you fracture the workforce to being some in office, some out of office, does that by definition fracture business processes, the flow of work, how work gets executed? I know that depends very much on what the job is and what the function is. But are you, my question is, are you seeing companies looking at retooling their business architecture, for lack of a better word, to be able to operate in the fluid nature of in, in person and remote? Yes, <laughs> we are. We are. Um, but, I, but I think it's, it's basically to be able to handle any of those scenarios, right? So right at the beginning of COVID, um, we were pulling CEOs about prioritizing their investments. And we were finding that, you know, they were deprioritizing physical investments. They were increasing their priorities around digital um, investments. So tools that would enable you to do your job from anywhere, shifting things to the cloud, um, eliminating that in-person, um, that in-person need. And so, you know, we still expect, and um, we actually, I showed data in the last one about this, that CEOs are still expecting to be prioritizing the digital investments um, much more so. Now, I don't know if the number would be so different without COVID, right? Like people are already prioritizing going digital and streamlining processes. Um, but I do think Bart, especially for things that are faster moving, um, where, you know, perhaps there's, um, you know, less control. Um, there's some things that, um, and this is the argument that some of the, the big banks and the, the deals teams and all are arguing that we need to be in for. Um, there's an element that's easier if you are all together, right? You don't have to worry about taking that water cooler conversation, typing it into your, your group chat and sharing the idea out. Um, but I think the, the point is, when is it really critical to all come in and, and sacrifice all these other benefits? It's not all, all day, all the time, every day. So where can you find the happy medium? I'll, I'll share a quick one. I'm, I'm familiar with a finance team uh, that 18 months ago, you never and they never would have thought or suggested that working outside of the office would work for them, that they had any interest in that, that it would be effective for the organization, that they could get the information they needed from people in the organization right around sort of uh, planning and forecasts and uh, uh, revenue projections and all that sort of stuff. And a year and a half later are probably the most vocal uh, uh, advocates for not returning to the office full time. Not, of course, not never, but not full time. Um, and I think it, in large part, has to do with you know they haven't written a physical check 
that requires dual signatures, right? In a in almost a year and a half. Well, that that process it was possible a year and a half ago, accelerated and implemented in the last you know year and a half, and it's just sort of one quite tangible example, right, of something that they were doing in the office together. That now that they've experienced not doing it in the office, but still doing it together, like a lot better. They're like, great, let's do more of that. Yep, and I'll just I'll echo that. I mean, I think um, accelerate. This has accelerated the pace. I think is what we've seen. Like thing, things were going that direction, and maybe in some industries the the pace of an iceberg. Um, and and now it's just overnight. We we've seen it can happen, and um, certainly the move to the cloud and the investment in more more digital technologies um, to to facilitate that um, offsite work, hybrid work, uh, is is definitely what we've seen over the past year. Okay, let's shift into the talent side of things. So uh, I know you talked about this a little bit, uh, Julie, in the last session. You know some of the challenges that hybrid presents is onboarding. Uh, promotions. I know there's concern that if you're not in the office as much, you wouldn't be seen by the boss as much. Assuming the boss is in the office, you wouldn't have as many promotional opportunities. So how does how does the hybrid environment impact onboarding, personal development, career advancement, those types of things? And what would you suggest uh, as how to level the field? That, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of you're going to say it's a lot of things I've been saying, right? We need to equalize the in-person and, and the remote and try to level that field and that will get us there. But um, are there any other things that you would suggest? Well, I think it's, it's tricky too, because when I think about, you know, one, like picking up one role in particular, like the role of a manager or leader, when you start to do the analysis we're describing around the personas and evaluating the work um, and then looking at who they actually interact with on a day-to-day basis, right? Um, You start to see that the leaders and managers are collaborating and, you know, working more across silos, generally speaking. And so generally speaking, they might be the ones who have to come in, you know, more than, than others. And that sends a signal to everyone else. Hey, you know, should I also be coming in? My leader, my boss is coming in four days a week instead of the two that are teams mandated. There's a business reason, but I want to go up for promotion. I want that opportunity. So it's, you know, I, I don't think there's a perfect answer here. Um, except to be really thinking about how you give and are inclusive of everyone on your team to make sure you're, you know, you're considering everyone based on um, impact, based on outcomes of the work they perform, um, the chance for the stretch opportunity versus the one who's just there in person. Yeah. I mean, the hard thing is whether, you know, it, it seeps into the psychology. Like if you come in in every day and you see someone's there when you get there every time and they're, when you leave, they're still there and you're like, wow, that, that person really works hard. Or they send emails all through the weekend and through the end of the night. And regardless of whether they're productive or not, there's a certain psychological belief that these people are working very hard and therefore they're productive and therefore they should advance. Um, whether you can parse that out in this environment um, and be more objective, I think is, is one of the challenges. And, and there is some, some un, I'm going to say unfortunate, right? I'll, I'll sort of lend my personal bias to that. But I think some unfortunate data that's been published, studies around the uh, promotability, right? The, the, uh, those present having a greater likelihood of promotion than those who are not. And in some 
cases, it because uh, go back to this, it's easier. It seems easier to tell who's better at their job than others based on how often they're around, just whether or not I can see them, right? Or a manager can see them. Um, and I just, uh, I, I just don't think our workplaces should be uh, the kinds of environments uh, that um, perform based on ease of something happening, right? Just because it's difficult doesn't mean we don't do it, uh, or at least give it a give it a go. Um, so yeah, so I, I mean, I'm all for you know performance, right? Not not presence. Yeah, I, I think there's an element of also being being more purposeful and um, diligent, maybe about. Uh, um, analyzing performance and, and productivity. So, so instead of like the once a year feedback, um, you know, make it monthly or make it, you know, make sure that managers are checking in more often and people are checking in with their managers and you're kind of on this continual, you're giving con- feedback continually and um, yeah, and rewarding feedback continuously and things like that so that you it's top of mind, even if you're not in the same environment. Exactly. Um, how about the retention side? So there's been several studies that have been released uh, indicating that uh, a lot of workers, more than 50%, would consider looking for a new job if, if the remote work wasn't an option or hybrid, flexible, whatever you want to call it, go forward. Uh, I know, Julie, you talked a little bit about that in your study um, uh, and results, I should say, of your presentation last time. How does that play out um, and what do employers need to do to kind of work on retention in this type of environment? I guess I can jump in here. Um, I would say they need to first understand what their employees are looking for. Um, you know, if, if the employees are saying, hey, we're working fine remote, um, like let's take, take that into consideration when you're looking at, you know, all, all the other things of can this, should this role be done remote, things like that. Um, I think you know, there is an element to the, the cultural thing. Um, and in terms of getting people kind of back, back into the office, which could help a little bit with retention. I mean, we're looking at um, updating the, the work environment, making it a more attractive place to be so that you're choosing to come, you know, this is the place I want to be. Um, and I want to go see these people. And even if it's just one day a week, some something like that to um, kind of attract people back to the office, whether it's, you know, just a nice place to be. We've got nice amenities. Um, the technology is better. It's making my job easier. Um, I think those are all, you know, kind of all elements that people are looking for. Julie, you mentioned that this kind of is elevated to the board level, right? Which that's a surprise to me, but it isn't when you say it, um, it makes sense. So what's your opinion on, on the talent retention side? Yeah, I mean, just given all all these studies that are coming out around how much turnover we're expecting and how many people may be looking for new jobs um, and in some cases, you know, exiting their current job without another job, um, you know, it's really it's really fascinating. And and, um, my concern for those companies who have not done what Megan's describing, right, like listen to employees, understand their sentiment try to give some flexibility and response, try to not be too prescriptive. It's perfectly fine to have a communication strategy that's, hey, nobody knows what we're doing right now because no one's ever been through a situation like this before. So here's what we're going to try. We're listening to you. We're going to get feedback and we might pivot after we see how it, if it's going well or not. Um, you know, that 
is a great communication strategy. Um, and some of our clients are actually erring on the opposite, just being quiet because they haven't planned through everything. And they're creating a lot of anxiety around that. So um, I just I just think it's all very closely connected. People are about to start jumping ship. They're burning out. They're exhausted. They may not feel appreciated. They may not have that interpersonal connection they used to have. So all of this is kind of creating a really, a really unique talent challenge as we as we go forward. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we have uh, about ten minutes left here. I want to shift into the privacy side of the equation here and and, and how it relates to employees. Um, I know as a software provider in the space and uh, the expansion we've heard in several discussions today of investment in IoT and other type of data collection. Um, mechanisms, uh, as well as the whole health backdrop uh, of COVID. Are you vaccinated? Are you not? Do you have a personal situation at home where you're taking care of someone? All these previously um, maybe topics or or questions that weren't asked or answered between employer and employee um, really leads to a lot of data being gathered and some concerns about privacy uh, have come up. So let's start out with kind of the IoT side of things. Um, and I'll let you jump in on this one, Adam. Um, you know, I, I always remember hearing stories of back in the day when sensors were first coming out, you know, under the desk, people would just rip them off and throw them in the garbage can because they, they didn't want Big Brother uh, knowing when they're there and when they're not there. But now there's legitimate business reasons for trying to understand at a more granular level when someone is occupying a space or not and if it's being used effectively or not both to serve productivity in the employee, but also to um, manage the economic side of, of real estate, which is a top five expense for most organizations. So how do you see privacy and the willingness or the reluctance to share data uh, between employee and employer? Yeah, I, there, there are very good business reasons, right, for this to happen, but there also there have been very good business reasons for this to happen. What we haven't done very well as a, as an industry, right, and thinking about real estate and workplace decisions is we haven't created or offered to the employee enough value to make more comfortable the trade, this privacy for value equation that as consumers, as, as, uh, as individuals in our personal lives, we make in favor of trading privacy for value. Again, I'm, I'm speaking generally. I'm sure there are some out there who, who, who choose otherwise, but we generally make every single day, hundreds of times per day, when we choose to uh, check Facebook, when we choose to order something on Amazon, when we choose to take that Uber or order lunch from uh, Grubhub, uh, we choose to get value from trading some degree of privacy in, uh, in, in, in lieu of a benefit to us. So as an industry, we have to start offering a greater degree of value for employees to overcome concerns that the information they're sharing is going to be used for nefarious purposes, right? Or um, uh, to hold something over their head that would uh, later cause undue concern or pressure uh, or, or sort of feelings of negativity in some way. And when we start doing that, the, this, this um, I won't say the concerns about privacy will go because they are very real and they're to be addressed. Um, but the resistance, right, will will lessen uh, to a much more manageable to degree. Yeah, and it, you know, the question is, does the employee want 
the employer to know that level of information. I, I draw the analogy to, I see those commercials for like Allstate or whatever type of auto insurance where I can take this device, I can stick it on my car and it's going to say how fast I drive, whether I take the right turns, uh, whether I'm obeying laws. I don't drive a lot of miles on my car. So it would be the smart thing for me to get because the mileage would show so low. But for some reason, I don't want them to know my driving habits and I don't know why. So I don't know if employees have similar type of, uh, of challenges and thoughts when, you go, when they go through, you know, wow, do they know I'm in the bathroom five times a day or that I, that I take an hour and a half lunch instead of a 45 minute lunch. So it's Julie, always the bathroom, always the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. It's always the bathroom. <laughs> so no more wrong concern. <laughs> and so, nobody's uh, tracking them in the bathroom, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what are you guys seeing, Megan and, and Julia, in that area? What's the, the sentiment on both sides? Yeah. So in terms of, um, you know, monitoring things in the office, I would say um, we're seeing on the employer side and recommending, quite frankly, to employers to understand how their space is being used. And that involves some level of sensors and data and tracking, which is not not a great word. But um, so I think, you know, the first the first recommendation we have around that is to do it in an anonymous fashion when possible. So you can know how your space is being used by, you know, putting in people counters and things that, you know, um, sensors that just basically detect heat. And you generally, you can know that people are there or not there. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one way to go. Um, when we've done kind of more, more interesting scenarios like you've got a mobile app. Um, and so obviously you can you can know who that person is if they're connected to the Bluetooth um, in the office, or you could find a person that way. Um, we allow some amount of control. So, you know, maybe I can switch that part of my app off. I'm in the office today, but I don't want anybody to, you know, come find me. I can, I have control over when, when I'm found and when I'm not. Um, and then I think the third thing is, as um, kind of Adam was saying and, and Julie was saying earlier around the communication is just transparency. You know, we're, yes, we're collecting this data and this is what we're doing with it. And, um, you know, just sharing, sharing that information with the employees so they at least understand um, what's going on. Yeah, I would just say outside of the, um, the sensors, you know, when we're gathering feedback from employees, we're also seeing a small amount of employees like opt out from responding about preferences, about including vaccine, no vaccine. I'm, I'm guessing that's the part they're really opting out of. But, you know, no, I don't want to make any statements. I don't want you to know anything about it, even though asking if you've been vaccinated or not it, and asking them to, to um, share that information, that is permissible. Um, you know, beyond that, you don't start getting into why, what your underlying health condition. There is a small population of employees we're hearing from clients too who don't want to don't want to disclose. Is it really the separation of work and personal life? I know as an example, I typically have a, a personal rule is like, I'm not going to friend many people on my social networks that are my work environment. Not that my personal life is something crazy and fun, but it, I like the separation of it um, uh, from a work uh, standpoint. So is, is that maybe some of the psychology behind it? Is there a generational element to this where younger or older individuals are more or less willing to share? Yeah, I do think we're seeing a little bit, you'd expect that younger are more and more willing, but there's a bit of a backlash. And um, we were getting feedback and it did see that um, uh, through these variety of, of workforce uh, pulse surveys that we are running, 
that younger employees were, you know, certainly feeling the impact more about being away. Um, I don't think we were surveying them purely about privacy concerns, but there's other studies that do talk about that, that they're, they're starting to draw a line more and more between the personal and professional. So it's, maybe it's a generational cyclical thing a little bit, Bart. And there's a component, right, of, of uh, awareness and control, right, of what to share and for, for what purpose, right, that, that information is going to be shared, um, particularly for, for younger generations who sort of grown up, not just not believing necessarily that there is no privacy, but that they have some role to play in deciding what to share. And, and again, for, for what purpose and what they get, you know, they get out of it, which, is, which again, which is why this is a, this is a very sort of popular uh, uh, topic um, uh, in data and privacy circles right now. Uh, the, the questions that are uh, being debated around uh, how organizations make use of, again, having nothing to do with sort of workplace um, you know, how organizations make use of information and data collected by uh, individual users of various platforms, et cetera. All right. Well, we are up at our one hour. I really appreciate, uh, Adam, you for joining Megan and, and Julia. Uh, I know it's been a long day, but it's been great information. I think uh, there's a lot of insight and value that uh, yourselves as well as the other presenters have been able to provide. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this session from Tango's Workplace 2.0 Summit. For more sessions from the summit, check out the show notes for details.